As it fell out upon a day As many in the year Musgrave to the church did go To see fair ladies there Some came down in red velvet And some came down in pall The last to come down was the lady born of I think music and, and writing complement each other well because you have that thing where music is kind of sociable and is done with people or in front of people, generally, apart from re rehearsal, whereas writing is very solitary. And so I think those two things suit me. And yeah, I, I definitely see the two as more linked than not. They complement each other quite nicely. Like there's a lot of musicians who are also woodworkers on the side and stuff like that. And that seems insane to me because you're just likely to lose your fingers or something. And that'd be the end of both. That's Wesley Stace talking about his two careers as novelist under his own name and as singer songwriter who performs under the name John Wesley Harding. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. As John Wesley Harding, he's released some 15 albums. But when he turned to literature a few years ago, he did so under his real name, Wesley Stace. Wesley Stace wrote the novels Misfortune and By George to the kind of reviews any writer would be overjoyed to receive. Stace has recently struck gold again with his third novel, Charles Jesseld, considered as a murderer. In Charles Jesseld, Stace weaves together his two artistic fields, music and writing. It's set in England in a turbulent moment in musical history, just before the First World War. The novel tells the story of a talented young composer, Charles Jesseld, who murders his wife, her lover, and then kills himself on the eve of his new opera's debut. The story is narrated by his friend and colleague, music critic Leslie Shepard. The result is riveting. It's a look at English music in the making and a whoppingly good thriller. This isn't just a good novel to have been written by a musician. It's a good novel by anyone's standards. I caught up with Wesley Stace at a writer's conference in Washington, D.C., I began our conversation by noting that while other singers may write fiction, his are distinct from the pack. He's taken the unusual step of writing long, complicated historical novels. Right, yes. There are genre writers who are singers, like Kinky Friedman and Jimmy Buffett, mm -hmm. and there are uh, people like Roseanne Cash and Steve Earle who've written very spare short stories and things like that. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm aware that I'm in a bit of a party of one when it comes to... Of course, everyone we've just mentioned, their music is on the kind of wordy, literary end. You're not going to get, for example, Little Richard isn't probably just going to write a novel tomorrow. You know, so you need a certain mindset. But also, I mean, in my particular case, my starting to write songs happened when I was doing my English literature degree at Cambridge. And I never had any creative writing outlet apart from that. Certainly, I was never taught creative writing and never went to a school for that kind of thing. But the books that I like and particularly that inspired my first book, Dickens, Trollope, Thackeray, these novels, I felt that with Misfortune, I could, by adding gender and psychology and sexuality into that mix, I could kind of add something to that novel that at the time they couldn't have really talked about. So in fact, I felt I was repaying kind of my debt to those novels by gently pastiching them, but also adding something to them, I hoped. Other than that, I think it would just be an index of my tastes and thoughts. You know, if you looked at my bookshelf, you would find on it a lot of books 
rather like the ones that I write, probably, whether they're from uh, 1760 or from the year 2010. I appreciate it because I'm a fan of the big fat book. I love Victorian novels. Mm. I love Trollope. Mm. When I get to know characters, I want to know them for a while. Right. I like the seven-volume novel. Yes. I want to to live with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Misfortune, I really tried to do that. I mean, in a Trollopean sense, I tried to make it so that there was nothing that could be said or added to the novel after it was finished. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. the, 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 the finish really was the end of the circle. There was no prequel or sequel that could be written to it. And in the new one, Charles Jessold, I really wanted to write about music. But of course, I'm already a musician. So I was very clear in my mind that I didn't want to set it in my world of music because I felt that I would be hijacked by my need to be satirical about you know, sticky dressing rooms and broken guitar strings <laughs> and lost deposits and cell phones going down when you need to do the interview and all that kind of thing. I'm saving that for the next novel. <laughs> so I, I wanted to kind of write about the creation of music in a slightly purer way than just a Roman Aklef uh, written by me. And in particular, in the new book, I wanted to write about the relationship between critics and artists, which well, I found very fascinating. Let's talk about the new book. First of all, the name, Charles Jessold, considered as a murderer. It's an unlikely title. Yes, it is. Charles Jesseld is obviously the composer who is the main kind of character in the book. But most importantly, he's not the narrator of the book. And I think there are a lot of pitfalls in criticism of music. One is the kind of biographical criticism problem, which is when you know too much about somebody's life and can therefore make sense of their work because of what you know about their lives. That's a very unfair way to judge a piece of art. And it happens a lot in rock music. For example, you know, Bob Dylan had a kind of a heart attack thing, therefore his next album's all about death. Which is silly because all his music's about death. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, people see their entire careers only in light of the fact that they died of drug overdoses at the end of those careers. You know, it's like it's all leading up to that. Mm -hmm. So it's Charles Jessel considered as a murderer because If you consider him in another light, all his works might appear differently. And so that's what the book's about. I read a biography of Stravinsky, which uh, was very interesting about the way he manipulated, played up to, and led by the nose, critics, in order to have his music be puffed by them in various ways and for them to be scandalised by it. He pushed all the right buttons with critics and had what one might call a very codependent relationship. When I read that about Stravinsky, there I felt was a novel, which is why it's a novel about a classical composer narrated most importantly by a critic. Who's Leslie Shepard. Who's Leslie Shepard, who is an ideologue. He is more interested in the cause of English music than he is in the music itself. He is more interested that he can please his newspaper editor, who is violently anti-German as the war is just about to come. And that's the First World War. It's set in England right before the First World War, about 1910. Exactly. That's when it begins. And at that time, England's favorite classical composers were Mendel. And Wagner and Strauss. Not Beethoven. Oh, and, and perhaps Beethoven and perhaps Handel. Well, they're all German. And so that's difficult when you're just about to go to a war with a country. And there was a famous German book of criticism called, I can't speak German, but it's um, about England called The Land Without Music. England had not had a successful run of music in a long while, particularly in terms of opera. There hadn't been an opera, successful opera since. Purcell's died when Aeneas in the 17th century. And Edward Elgar, who was England's greatest living composer, 
had to be accepted first in Germany before he was sent back to England and everyone said he was a genius. So a lot of other nations, because of various territorial disputes, had had nationalist music movements, famously, you know, Bohemia and Poland and uh, Finland. And we, can, we all know those famous pieces. Even America had a little Aaron Copeland looking at its, his home folk melodies. And, and so the composers turned to the national music in order to find inspiration and make a more English kind of music. So, my critic is all about shaping Charles Jessold into the composer who will solve England's musical problems. And the composer, is, it should be said, is a younger man. Much younger man, yes. You might think there was be a gay thing happening in that, but yeah, then, in fact, that doesn't play at all. No, but I was just looking at the differential in terms of age, which I think matters a great deal. It does, although, in fact, um, there's a bit where he realises that he's not actually that much older than him. He's from a previous generation. That's the most important thing. And, um, in fact... I just mentioned Bob Dylan, and he's kind of worth mentioning again, not only because my musical stage name is John Wesley Harding, but because I think of Jessel as a kind of Bob Dylan character in the sense that Bob Dylan took folk music and protest music, used it as a stepping stone to wider musical expression, which is what changed the musical world. The, the folk music and the protest music, he would, if he just kept doing that, he'd be Tom Paxton or, or Peter, Paul and Mary or something. But he chose to reject that and pick up electric guitars and everybody booed. Well, Jessel's the same kind of character and Shepard is the one who's booing. And he wants to keep him in this little box of uh, Anglicana and Jessel wants to go out and explore the wider world of music. That's where the conflict is. What made you choose this period, this conflict? Partly that nationalist thing, uh, the nationalist music thing, because that's when it happened in England. And because it happened then, I knew that I wanted to write about a time of conflict. And I had this image of two men on bicycles going out to discover a folk song, which is more or less the first thing that happens in the book. And I liked that image a lot, and it stayed with me, just two men kind of bicycling. And I kept on wondering who they were. I think I try and fill books generally with the things I'm very comfortable with writing about. And one of the things is folk music. I mean, Little Musgrave, that is the central song in the book, is a song that I have myself recorded. So all roads led to that. She's cast the look on the Little Musgrave as bright as the summer sun. And then bethought this a Little Musgrave, this lady's love I've won. Good day, good day, you handsome youth. God make you safe and free. What would you give this day, Musgrave, to lie one night with me? I dare not for my lands, lady, I dare not for my life. For the ring on your white finger shows you are Lord Barnard's wife. Lord Barnard's to the hunting gone, I hope he'll never return. You shall slip into his bed and keep his lady warm. There's nothing for to fear, Musgrave, you nothing have to fear. I'll set a page outside the gate to watch till morning clear. And woe be to the little foot page, in an ill death may he die. For he's away to the green, green wood as fast as he could fly. When he came to the well, I'd seen this uh, documentary by Werner Herzog called, uh, I think, Death for Five Voices about this Renaissance composer called Carlo Gesualdo. And that was also 
incredibly formative on the book because I kind of wanted to write a book about him. But then I was like, well, I don't want to write a renaissance because he spectacularly murdered his wife and got away with it because, of course, she was committing adultery and there was nothing wrong with him killing her. He could kill her blamelessly. However, the guilt of it racked him for the rest of his life. And he went back to Gesualdo, where I myself traveled for inspiration for this book and cut down the trees 10 miles in every direction so he could see them coming from his castle when they came and kind of went mad and wrote crazy atonal music that wasn't discovered until the beginning of the 20th century in the same way that Lawrence Stern wrote a rather crazy modernist book Tristram Shandy that wasn't really appreciated till James Joyce and Virginia Woolf got their hands on it so that was interesting to me as well and I wanted to write about Gesualdo so I thought well how about if I had a modern composer whose crimes seem to mirror these you know what would that be what kind of circumstances would it be I mean this is how things happen for me there's there's so many different things and then finally it, it all pushes over the edge into a place where they all coalesce that's what's happened with each of my novels so far and clearly this novel has a lot of music. Yeah, there is a lot of music in the book, and it's a lot of music that I love as well. And I mean, there's some fictional composers in there. There's some Adrian Leverkuhn has a little bit part. Edwin Elgar, who's actually real, has a bit part. Vaughan Williams. Um, Vaughan Williams is in there. as a. I think he actually appears as a character. Mm-hmm. And even Alex Ross, the classical music critic of The New Yorker, is in there very, very anachronistically. How is it putting real people, most particularly Vaughan Williams, in a book of fiction? I'd probably think twice about giving people too much dialogue, real people too much dialogue. In fact, I'm rather against the current movement of uh, just telling real stories in movies the whole time. I think it's gotten a little tired now. You know, it's, it's like watching people do an impression of uh, the Queen or Tony Blair or whatever. I mean, it's all well and good. But really, in the end, what's being said, it seems to be just a fantasy that's really more of a way to sell something because everybody knows about it, therefore it's something that can be, you know, something that will drag people to a cinema. It's familiar, exactly. And, I mean, this has been done so beautifully in literature. I'm thinking, I, of course, think of The Master by Colm Toybin, which is that stupendous book about uh, Henry James. But but my my interest was not really in um, bringing any real characters to life. More that, I think that if one talks about a fake composer. It's not like the real ones can't exist. Therefore, reference has to be made to his position in the great spectrum of composers. And that one does by actually mentioning the real ones and using them as yardsticks. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So so, so it's more, that was more my interest to me. Interestingly, I think a couple of American publishers said to me they, they thought it'd be difficult for American people to understand the folk music element of this. But to me, that seems ludicrous because the folk music element is almost entirely American anyway. All those songs were discovered in the Appalachians, the purest version of those folk songs, like Little Musgrave. England had already gone industrial and all the folk songs were dying. I mean, this was looked upon as an act of resuscitation and an act of salvation by the by the people who went out and found the folk songs because they were dying. There was an urgent need to find them before they went forever because people, gramophones were around, people were going to the music hall, people were singing Gilbert and Sullivan songs. But of course, the purer versions of these songs and the purest versions were then subsequently found in the Appalachians, where there were pre-rural communities who were actually singing more original versions of the songs than the people in the fields were singing in England or in the pubs. Isn't that ironic? It's just fantastic, yeah. isn't it? And I mean, that, and I make play on that in the book too. So, you know, I think the, the, a lot of the folk music stuff from people I've spoken to so far, far from having a problem with it, I think people might actually understand it better over here than they do in England. And as you point out, Copeland certainly 
only went back to mm. to folk music, most obviously, mm. but then Beethoven did too. Absolutely. I think composers always have. It's just that very often in, mu- in countries' musical histories, it's happened at a time when a national identity needed to be created. Because a lot of those countries uh, who, who had these kind of wonderful nationalist movements were countries whose borders were being eroded, who weren't sure what language they spoke. But, you know, I mean, America's America, but Europe is just like changing boundaries. They're changing today. They could be changing in Africa right right now. You know, no, exactly. You know, so, and it's at times like these, I think, when the melodies that are in the national DNA assert themselves and people want to make these kind of musical statements. Can we talk about um, Leslie Shepard, your narrator? How was it having him narrate the book? Quite difficult, because he's not like me. He's a rather fussy and fastidious man, and rather buttoned up and repressed, and an ideologue, and I'm none of those things. Having said that, it meant that I was able to write in the kind of slightly Mandarin style that he might well have chosen for his own writing, and that did suit my narrative purposes quite a lot. So once I'd found the voice, I, I won't pretend I went through too many agonies to found it, but one, find it, but once I had found it, it made writing the novel a lot easier. When I was reading it, the voice I heard in my head was John Gielgud. That would be perfect. I don't know how to talk about this, except to suggest he's a tad unreliable as the narrator. Yeah, absolutely. And was that fun? Did it get to be playful for you to do that? Well, he's, 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 he's... It's nice when you get compared to Nabokov. That's a very nice person to be compared to, given he's my favorite writer. You know, this book isn't clever in, in that way, but... His relationship to Charles Jessold is very much the same as the narrator of Pale Fire's relationship to John Shade. I mean, he is there to explain it all away and to explain how really he's the centre of the story. That's his job. He's the narrator. Now, unreliable narration is a bit of a woolly concept. I mean, either a a narrator is completely... I'm stealing this off Martin Amis a little bit, but unreliable narrators are either mad, in which case they're not really unreliable, they're just mad, or they're in fact incredibly reliable, they're just not telling you the truth. So it's a bit of a woolly concept. I mean, either someone's mad and they're just, you can't trust them, anything, it's nothing to do with reliability, or they're lying. I, I'm not going to say where, where Shepard falls into that category, but, you know, he wants Jessel to be a certain thing. And he wants his music to read a certain way. And you do that with the biographical evidence that supports it. And this is long time, long, long time before the death of the author. This is when, you know, the author and his private life and the man behind the thing. And there were all those big biographies of people that were just panegyrics. You know, they weren't, there was nothing negative in these things at all. Well, Jessold, the novel is structured that there's a murder report, and then he, it's his, what he tells the police, and then it's what actually happened. It's a very, very normal structure for a novel to have the same event viewed through different lenses. It's just that in this case, it's, it's uh, the same person telling it each time. And as the writer, is it fun to do that? Absolutely. I think it's always good to look at different perspectives on the same incident. I mean, you know, everything that we ever do in life, if there's more than one person doing it, there's conflict and bizarreness because everybody's looking at things a a different way. So, I mean, I think possibly it's the only real way to describe reality. I mean, that was what modernism discovered. That's why 
the golden notebooks are great and why, you know, T.S. Eliot's great. It's because that's what modernism gave us. Do you find you read differently since you, since you began writing? I think I do. I think I could relate that to music. It's much harder for me to listen to music with pleasure than it is just in the background without thinking about it as a musician, because I'm forever kind of producing it and rearranging it and criticizing it in my head. Which is why, one of the reasons perhaps why this book's about classical music, because it's a world of music that's still kind of somewhat unknown to me compared to the world of music that I make as a singer-songwriter. And I think without being too specific about it, I think you, that, that's a direct analogy for my feeling about writing books. You know, I mean, I, it that doesn't mean that I now read a Dickens and just keep deconstructing it into its little parts and go, this bit works, that bit doesn't. I mean, I'm still totally capable of being lost in a book. But I now admire much more the really well-written sentence because I know how hard they are to achieve. You know, when I'm reading Randall Jarrell's pictures from an institution that I was just... I mean, I just couldn't believe every single sentence in that book was spectacular. I, I mean, it was so revelatory to be just reading it, thinking, wow. Because, I mean, in everybody, there's a few just little cliches here and there, but there just wasn't one in there. And uh, that made me think, there's something to achieve. You know, that, that's, there's, there's always some way to get better, and that's, you know, that's a way to get better. I think I like to write very clean sentences. And again, as I said, this book's in a slightly Mandarin style. But I definitely read that book and was like, that is something to look up to, you know. In that way, there's all, you know, it, can, it can still be very inspiring, even though you can still end up criticizing things about it, not that particular book. But, you know, you can read another book and go, God, I can't read this. Obviously, at first, some of the people who picked up your books did so because they knew who you were as a performer. Mm. But do you find now that people are discovering you as a performer by having read your books? Yep. There was uh, a little debate with my uh, with uh, the people who published Misfortune about, you know, their sales department said maybe you should really considering it putting it out under John Wesley Harding and I said no and I had my agent heartily support me on this. It's like no. It's a fresh thing. If somebody had asked me 21 years ago, 22, 23 years ago, do you want to be, you'll be still making music in 23 years. Do you want to be John Wesley Harding or Wesley Stace? I'd have said Wesley Stace. But I thought I would be stopping about 23 days because it would be such a disaster. So I used, I used a fake name, which is, there's a fine lineage of that in rock music. It's, it's no unusual thing. It's, in fact, it's hard to think of people, when you get down to it, who haven't got fake names. And I said to them, no, I'm going to do it on Wesley Stace. It just doesn't look right to have the fictional name of a Bob Dylan album on this historical novel that took me seven years to write. You know, it's just Wesley Stace is a much better name just to have on the spine of a novel. John Wesley Harding just doesn't make any sense. He's like a fictional character created by Bob Dylan named after a real cowboy. You know, it just doesn't... It's a stupid name to have on the side of it. So I was very definitive that it would be Wesley Stace. My hope then was that, in fact, it would bring people to my music because they would like my books. And I mean, you know, not to put too fine a point in it, there was a moment when I said to my accountant, how's, you know, how are the finances this year? And she said, well, let's put it this way, you're a writer now. And so, I mean, you know, and I think that's definitely the way it's happened. I don't think many people are buying Wesley Stace books because they're fans of John Wesley Harding. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them might well be, but I mean, in France nobody's heard my music, nor ever have. I played one gig there supporting John Hyatt in 1990, and Misfortune was a bestseller. So there's certainly nobody there buying any books because they think I'm a musician. It might be a titillating side issue that I've done a duet with Bruce Springsteen. You know, that might be a good little 
paragraph in the piece or the review. But, uh, I mean, that doesn't sell you books. It's just good for a magazine article. But people are coming to your music. They definitively are coming to my music, yes. And I, I get emails about it. And, in fact, with my books, I would, I would often say that I would not force one of my books onto somebody who liked my music. There is no reason, because they like a three-and-a-half-minute song by me, they should like a six-, seven-hundred-word novel. They might read... I don't know what their reading matter is. I would hope it's stuff that I like and that they're good reading people and all that kind of thing. But the bottom line is most people might or might not like this book, but whether they like my music has no reflection on it. What's more interesting to me is people who come to the book and then go, hey, I also picked up one of your albums and I really liked it. And I mean, I do think there's a reason they should because I think my music is nice. Music is easily digestible. Paintings can be looked at very quickly. Books take a lot of time. That's why we love them, because we can sink into them and live with them. But that's also why you don't want to impose them on somebody just because they like a song by me. It doesn't make any sense that I would think they would like my novel as well. How do you create a life that actually supports writing or songwriting? How do you create a life that allows you to do that? That's such a difficult question. To start with, you have to really do what you want to do and believe that you want to do it because nobody else will believe in it if, if you don't. If you're doing it half-heartedly, nobody will be able to persuade you that it's the right thing to do, so you might as well give up. You know, people, perhaps in writing programs, want the secret to it. And people with self-help books want the secrets to things. But there are no secrets. What there is is hard work, grind, keeping at it, uh, not being afraid of failure. You know, there's all those things. that th th These aren't lessons you can teach people. And I've never taught creative writing. But I do very much get the feeling that, you know, you can make a bad thing good... And you can probably make a good thing slightly better. But then there's the icing on the top. And, I mean, who could possibly teach that? You know, I just don't, I, I don't think there's a way it could be communicated. I mean, it's either going to be there on the page the moment you read something by somebody, or it isn't, it, it seems to me, or in the song. And it's so wonderful when it is. After that, you then have the reality of making it work in terms of how do you make money doing it. And that's a whole separate issue altogether because the thing that you are doing, in my case being a songwriter, was directly in opposition to the ability to stay at home to write a novel. And so, you know, like anybody else, I had a day job. It's just that mine happened at night. But, you know, you, you teach or you teach and work in a shop or to just give yourself the hours to write. But writing takes a long time. So that's very difficult, too. So there's, there's so many layers to this bit of the question. Then you get into issues of how do you persuade a publisher or how do you get an agent? You know, all these things are incredibly complicated, too. So it's like there's so not one possible answer to it. But what there are is a million little obstacles. And the first one is just knowing that it's what you want to do and the second is approaching how you could possibly translate that to the world at large because there's then various fences you have to jump over to get it out into the marketplace and even when you're there there's a whole nother set of stuff so I mean it's it's such a magnificently perplexing question that that it, it's tough to think of a a simple answer for it. But I would say that the first bit is you have to know you want to do it. A friend of mine got an, an advance to write a book and he didn't finish the book and he had to pay the advance back. And I said, did you learn anything from the experience? And he said, uh, I mean, this happened over many conversations, but he said, yes, 
never take money from somebody unless you know you really, really want to do the thing that you've agreed to do. He said, and obviously I just didn't. I just didn't realize that. I was so excited to get this deal to write this book. And I mean, what a good piece of advice that is. I have two swords in one scabbard full dear they cost my purse. You shall have the That's novelist Wesley Stace, who performs under the name John Wesley Harding. His latest novel is Charles Jesseld, considered as a murderer. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Little Musgrave, performed by John Wesley Harding, from the album Trad R. Jones, used courtesy of Jim Musselman and Appleseed Recordings. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, Hawaiian slide guitar legend and a 2011 National Heritage Fellow, Led Kapana. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. As it fell out upon a day as many in the year Musgrave to the church did go To see fair lady